Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 11 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. An 18-year-old student goes missing after a night out clubbing. Almost a week would elapse before his body was discovered in a river eight miles from where he was last seen, being chased by a gang of youths. Arrests were made and a trial date was set. But why did he die? In the 1990s, Flamingo's nightclub opened in Milton Keynes. A few years later, under new owners, it was rebranded as Empire. But the name appeared to be the only thing that had changed. For the biggest and most well-known club in a large town in the southeast of England, with an ever-expanding young population, business was booming. The constant pulse from the loud music that echoed through the night was not a concern for their neighbours. The adjacent building was an ice skating rink that would have closed its doors hours earlier. Across the courtyard was a sports bar that benefited from the pre-clubbing drinkers who would only have to walk around 50 steps to get to the nightclub. Male partygoers were required to wear smart shoes fitting in with the no-trainers policy. The men in the late 90s would often wear brightly coloured shirts. Hair would be gelled down almost flat to their head, and black trousers were worn as they entered Empire in droves. Young women followed in a uniform of short dresses and high-heeled shoes, 
the floor was sticky with alcohol. The popular beverages at the time were sugary Smirnoff ice, lemon hooch, WKD and shots of aftershock. The smell of Lynx deodorant and Impulse body spray lingered in the air with the smell of cigarettes. This added to the already hazy atmosphere stimulated further by the smoke machine. For the club's owners, it had the bonus of drying mouths, so more visits to the bar for an alcoholic refreshment would be required. Perfume and lollipops were sold in the women's bathroom at one pound a time, and music blared from every room split over two floors. After a night of partying, clubbers could often be seen waiting outside in a long line for a taxi. Women held their high-heeled shoes in their hands to soothe their aching feet. Some revellers would congregate at the kebab van parked nearby. The proprietor could not keep up with the constant trade. On those freezing nights, no clubbers took a coat. It would take too much time to drop the clothing off in the cloakroom, and the one pound it cost for the privilege would eat into their drinking money. The clientele was young. At the time, identification checks were perhaps not as stringent. Teenage girls, some as young as 15, might be let in by the suit-clad bouncers on the door. The young men were not so lucky and were almost always asked for ID. Empire was well-known and wildly successful. It was the place to go. Probably the only place to go. The atmosphere and intoxication artificially inflated egos. To some young men who were desperate to prove they were alpha males, anyone who did not have the correct clubbing uniform and haircut or appeared to be different, outside of the mainstream, was fair game. Fights often broke out in the car park. In the early hours of Friday, June 11th, 1999, after the club's doors had closed and everyone was trying to get home, something more brutal and terrifying than a drunken scuffle was to unfold. Jonathan Coles had been missing for almost a week when the discovery was made. A student from Wendover in Buckinghamshire had been out with his friends at Empire Nightclub in Milton Keynes. He had failed to return home, the home he shared with his parents. Jonathan, the youngest of five children to Colin and Ursula Coles, was approaching the end of his A-level exams. He attended Sir Henry Floyd Grammar School in Aylesbury and was set to go to university. He loved listening to music. Jonathan was labelled a boy of talent and great promise. He was five feet ten inches tall with a slim build and always wore his glasses. That night on Thursday, June 10th, 1999, Jonathan decided to join his friends, one of whom was celebrating a birthday. There was no indication that anything was wrong or there was any trouble until revellers began to leave the club as it closed its doors. A fight broke out and Jonathan was separated from his friends. The last witness sighting reported to the police indicated that Jonathan appeared to be evading a group of young males on foot before he disappeared and had not been seen since. That was the early morning of Friday, June 11th. Detectives began an investigation to learn what had become of the 18-year-old. Almost a week later, 
Some anglers who were out at a popular fishing spot saw something floating in the tranquil waters of the Great River Ouse. It was an area where youngsters often swam, and sometimes even jumped in from a high bridge that passed over the water. The fishermen thought there had been an accident. They immediately raised the alarm. Police divers were called in, and a cordon was set up. A body was pulled from the waters at the point where the river runs through the southern boundary of Tyringham, a village in the borough of Milton Keynes. Tyringham was around 20 minutes' drive from where Jonathan Coles had been out with his friends. Not even 24 hours after the discovery was made, the body was confirmed to be that of Jonathan Coles. Jonathan was physically fit, but he had always steered clear of water. His father would subsequently say that his son had likely swum only one width of a swimming pool in his entire life. As the tragic news was reported, police announced that four young men had been taken into custody and were being questioned in connection to Jonathan's death. Three of the four men would soon be charged with kidnap, robbery and murder. In a preliminary hearing, they were identified as Brian Elaine, Dwayne Dawkins and Jason Kniep. They all came from Milton Keynes. Dawkins, Kniep and Elaine were 20. A fourth suspect, Darren Matthews, who was not identified initially due to his age, was 17. He would eventually face similar charges of kidnap, robbery and murder. The young men were remanded in custody as the Crown steadily built its case against them. When assessing the circumstances of their upbringing or their then-present situation, nothing appeared to shine a light on why the suspects would end someone's life. While two of them had criminal records, Jason Kniep for stealing a refrigerated lorry which he subsequently took on a joyride, and Brian Elaine for dishonesty, among other things, none of the young men was seen as violent. Dwayne Dawkins worked as a shop assistant in a Waitrose supermarket. His school grades highlighted that he was intelligent and had applied himself during his studies. He lived in a flat on North Street in New Bradwell, Milton Keynes, coincidentally no more than 200 metres from where the Great River Ooze passed his home. Kniep's formative years were described by a fellow pupil at his former school. He was said to be well-behaved and a, quote, good little boy, not nasty, fairly quiet. The then refuse collector who had formerly worked in catering and then at a dairy press before he lost his job due to his arrest lived in an estate in Milton Keynes called Eaglestone. Darren Matthews, a year shy of adulthood, lived with his parents on Barber's Muse, another estate about three miles away from Kniep. He worked as a waiter in a beefeater restaurant. Brian Elaine had only just learned that he was to be a father. A baby was born while he was on remand. Elaine was the only member of the gang without a job. The group did not take drugs that night, only drank alcohol. Details of what exactly happened were revealed in a pre-trial hearing at Luton Crown Court. Jonathan Coles was with his friends Brett Horton and Jonathan Smith. It was their acquaintance Lindsay Braniff who was celebrating a birthday. 
Jonathan and his two friends had reportedly planned to hail a taxi and return to Lindsay's home in Gifford Park. The time was approximately 2am. As they waited for a taxi to turn up outside the club near a kebab van, Jonathan was aggressively approached by a youth who has never been publicly identified. According to newspaper reports, the altercation supposedly started over a cigarette. By all accounts, Jonathan did nothing to provoke his attacker. He was taunted and then punched. This assailant called over his friends as the fracas continued. A crowd of bystanders grew exponentially. In a standoff that included some of the suspects... Jonathan and his friends fled as they realised they were outnumbered. They were chased through an area of scrubland close to Empire Nightclub. Jonathan ran in a different direction, becoming separated before he disappeared and subsequently drowned in the waters of the Great River Ooze. So how exactly does a promising young student doing nothing more than enjoying a night out for a friend's birthday end up dead? What possible reason did the young men linked to his death have to kill him? What Jonathan Coles was subjected to is difficult to comprehend. The prosecutor described him as a confident, outgoing young man with an active social life. He had a promising future, William Coker QC said. Puzzlingly, two of the four defendants pleaded guilty to manslaughter, Jason John Kniep and Dwayne Dennis Dawkins. Brian Dean Elaine and Darren John Matthews protested their innocence. None of the defendants knew Jonathan Coles before the incident, but following a forensic examination, Jonathan's blood had been found inside the back seat of a vehicle that belonged to Jason Kniep. As fate would have it, the young men in the dock were also out celebrating a birthday. Dwayne Dawkins had turned 20. He was out with his fellow defendants when some of them joined the gang that encircled Jonathan Coles and his friends before they fled from the altercation. When Jonathan became separated, Dwayne Dawkins was in pursuit along with Brian Elaine, who were the first members of the gang to catch up with the student. Elaine would later be labelled the driving force behind what happened. The youngest member of the gang, Darren Matthews, had also given chase and caught up with Dawkins and Elaine, as Jonathan was held down and beaten bloody. His wallet containing his bank card was stolen, and one of the defendants demanded the pin. They then left Jonathan Coles, not caring if he lived or died from the injuries they had inflicted. Jason Kniep drove the gang to a cash point to try and withdraw what money they could using Jonathan's bank card. He only had one pound and three pence in his bank account. When they realised the account was almost empty, the gang were infuriated, so they drove back to the scene of the crime. In the meantime, Jonathan Coles eventually got to his feet. His glasses had been lost, leaving him unable to see properly. In the dead of night, disorientated by his attack, Jonathan could barely stand, and now without his spectacles it made the journey to find help almost impossible. As he blindly walked towards a road, he saw the headlights of passing cars. He tried to flag them down. Jonathan was hoping someone would help him, but his ordeal was far from over. 
the car, a Peugeot 309 to be precise, being driven by Jason Kniep, pulled up with Jonathan's attackers inside. They jumped out and the assault continued before Jonathan was forced into the car and kidnapped. Held in the back seat, he was driven around Milton Keynes, first stopping at a petrol station. According to news reports, CCTV captured the vehicle and its movements sometime around 3am. Kniep then drove the gang and their prisoner to Gifford Park, where the defendant suspected Jonathan Cole's friends were staying. Jonathan was terrorised. He was told to stay in the car as Kniep sat in the driver's seat. Jonathan had been informed by his tormentors there would be consequences if he tried to run. Earlier, Jonathan had been told by one of the gang, Brian Lane, I know where you live, and I know where your friends live. The mobile phone numbers for both Jonathan Coles and his friend Lindsay Braniff would later be found in Brian Lane's mobile phone. When Lindsay arrived home, Elaine Dawkins and Matthews approached her menacingly, unsuccessfully seeking the whereabouts of Jonathan's other friends, although the gang's exact motives at this point were never fully understood. When the three members of the group returned to the car, they set off from Gifford Park. The next step in this series of events is where the accounts of the defendants diverge. Brian Elaine and Darren Matthews suggested that after this point, they were dropped off. They had no idea what happened next. But driver Jason Kniep and Dwayne Dawkins' accounts were so very different from that of their co-defendants. They described how after stopping in Gifford Park, Jonathan Coles was driven to a stone bridge in Tiringham above the Great River Ooze. The remote spot was bordered by large green fields on both sides. The gang had decided to take Jonathan swimming, a suggestion made by Darren Matthews. Jason Kniep had to be directed to the area as he had not been there before, nor had Dwayne Dawkins. The car pulled up to the isolated spot on the brow of the bridge, and Jonathan was pulled from the vehicle. He begged for his life in a state of terror and torment. Jonathan shouted he could not swim but his pleas fell on deaf ears. Some of the defendants would argue they did not hear him. His attackers made sure they picked a spot where the bridge rises above the centre of the river. It would take considerable effort even from an experienced swimmer to stay afloat after falling from such a significant drop into the cold water. Jonathan fought with all his might, but with people striking him and grabbing at his limbs, he was overpowered quickly. According to Kniep and Dawkins, Elaine and Matthews threw Jonathan over the bridge. Dawkins would admit to pulling Jonathan onto the bridge, but claimed he was not party to lifting him up. Jonathan was thrown over the side but gripped the parapet, desperately trying to hold on. The youngest of the gang, Darren Matthews, was large for his age. He had been terrorising Jonathan throughout the journey. Matthews struck Jonathan's fingers as he clung suspended above the water. His fingers were punched kicked, then pried away before he fell 25 feet. At the point Jonathan entered the water, the river was 16 feet deep and 65 feet wide. As he struggled, fighting to stay afloat, doggy paddling to the left bank, his limbs kicked out, 
Jonathan fought to keep his head above water as he shouted for help. One of his abductors said back, Go on, you are almost halfway there. As attested by Jason Kniep and Dwayne Dawkins, Brian Elaine and Darren Matthews momentarily went down to the riverbank. Dawn had not broken, so the defendant's vision may have been impaired because of the darkness, but not completely. It was not pitch black. Dawkins watched from the bridge. He would later state that he thought Jonathan Coles would eventually make it to safety. He claimed there was no intention to kill on his part, but he knew there was a substantial risk. Dawkins' judgment had apparently been impaired by alcohol. He testified that he saw Jonathan Coles near what he thought was a log and believed that Jonathan had managed to grab it to stay afloat. As Jason Kniep was the driver, he did not see what was happening, only overhearing the commotion on the bridge. He turned the headlights off so as to not be easily seen. Kniep described hearing a fight, then a splash. When the other three defendants returned to the car, the question, where is he, was posed. Kniep was told by Elaine that Jonathan was on a log at the edge of the river. Kniep explained that he believed after the group attacked Jonathan Coles, they would leave him by the roadside. This assumption stemmed from the fact that they had driven past a red phone box on the way to the bridge, and Jonathan was told this was where, quote, you will have to get to, to make a phone call. Jason Kniep testified that he never heard Jonathan Coles say he could not swim and assumed that the worst outcome was Jonathan walking home soaking wet. When the attackers got back into the car, Brian Elaine was boastful about what he saw as his achievement, attacking, quote, some nerd. It appeared the gang were keen to hide their tracks. The car's license plate was changed. While offering evidence, the driver, Jason Kniep, accepted that he was responsible for this. He was concerned that they might be caught. At the halfway stage of the trial, all four defendants argued that there was no case to answer for a charge of murder so it should not be put to a jury. But this was dismissed by the judge. Dawkins and Kniep had already admitted their presence on the bridge. In the case of Elaine and Matthews, prosecution witnesses had provided details of conversations the remaining two defendants had in which they spoke of being there. The judge felt it was for the jury to decide based on the evidence. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux. 
Botox XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Defence counsel for Dwayne Dawkins, Nicholas Brown QC, eloquently described the barbaric acts of violence the men in the dock committed when he told the court, For about an hour, these young men stepped out of the ambit of civilised conduct. Under questioning, Jason Kniep frankly described a jovial air about the gang as they tormented another person. Kniep even referred to those early morning hours as a mindless spiral of violence. When each of the defendants presented their cases, it was then Dwayne Dawkins changed a plea and admitted to one count of robbery. He already confessed to charges of kidnapping and manslaughter. During his interview, Dawkins had told officers that although he did not intend for Jonathan Coles to die, he knew Jonathan could not swim. Dawkins said, I cannot swim myself, so I know what he was going through, but I did not do anything. In his defence, Brian Elaine said he was nowhere near the bridge. He had supposedly been dropped off. He did not know what happened. Elaine claimed he at first went home and then went to Dwayne Dawkins' flat. This was a position that Elaine had taken from the day he was arrested to the trial. That said, a witness for the prosecution, Mark Strudwick, told the court of a conversation he had with Elaine around 10am on June 11th, hours after Jonathan Coles was killed. During that period, no one knew of Jonathan's whereabouts, let alone that he was dead. Elaine allegedly admitted to Strudwick that someone drowned at Tyringham Bridge, and Jonathan's name was even mentioned. However, Elaine denied this conversation with his acquaintance ever happened when cross-examined in court. 
telling William Coker QC he was not there. A heated exchange followed. Coker asked the defendant, Mr. Elaine, let me give you this one last chance. Did Jonathan drown by accident? How would I know? Elaine said. Did Jonathan drown by accident? I've just answered the question I do not know. If Jonathan drowned by accident and you were there, what reason would you have not to tell the jury about it? Well, I don't... I can't answer that question, can I? You meant to drown Jonathan, did you not? I've just said to you I was not there. I do not know how he drowned, so how can I mean to drown him? You are such a coward that you would rather drown Jonathan than face up to what you have done to him. That is the truth, is it not? That's not the truth at all. I wouldn't kill somebody. I'm not even a violent person. My actions were totally out of character that night and I regret some of the things I'd done. I wouldn't intentionally kill somebody, the defendant replied. Elaine's defence counsel pointed out there was no physical evidence that his client was at the bridge other than testimony by Jason Kniep and Dwayne Dawkins. Addressing the evidence offered by Mark Strudwick, Elaine's counsel said that this testimony should be disregarded as it came from someone described in court as an alleged cannabis user who was easily confused. Darren Matthews was the second member of the gang to claim that he was not at the bridge. He made it clear that he was not involved in throwing anyone in the water. Matthews adamantly insisted that he got dropped off at the top of his street, and his mother even claimed that her son was at home for the rest of the night. But the prosecution again called a witness who recounted a conversation they had with Darren Matthews. The defendant supposedly admitted that he was at the bridge when someone died after they fell in the water. Matthews was asked by his friend Andrew Jolly if anyone jumped in to help. Matthews supposedly said they were all too scared. When questioned about this, Darren Matthews did admit to having a conversation with Jolly the night after Jonathan Coles died, but disputed the statement which mentioned that Matthews had spoken of a drowning. To hammer home the point that Matthews knew the waters were dangerous and jumping or throwing someone off Tyringham Bridge could lead to a fatality, William Coker QC questioned Matthews thoroughly on the stand. Coker asked Matthews, for argument's sake, what would happen if he had a friend who could not swim and they jumped off Tyringham Bridge into the river? Well, he wouldn't jump off the bridge if he knew he could not swim, Matthews replied. Why not? the barrister asked. It's just something you wouldn't do. If you couldn't swim, you would not jump off a bridge. Why not? Because, I mean, you'd get into difficulties. And if you were sensible enough, you wouldn't. You wouldn't even think about jumping off a bridge if you couldn't swim, Matthews said. Darren Matthews denied he was ever at the bridge, so he could not tell if Jonathan Coles died by accident. Brian Elaine and Darren Matthews' refusal to accept that they were present would prove crucial in future court proceedings. The Crown's case was simple. The defendants had killed Jonathan Coles as they did not want him to be able to report what they had done, brutally attacking him and stealing his wallet and attempting to steal what money he had in his bank account. The prosecutor explained that while they did not have to prove motive, there was an intention to kill. 
In regards to finding someone guilty of murder, the judge told the jury, The offence of murder is committed when a person kills another with intent to kill him or to cause him grievous bodily harm. That is really serious bodily harm. When reaching a separate verdict for each defendant, the judge asked the jury to meditate on some written guidance he had provided regarding intent. It was something each juror needed to ask themselves if considering a guilty verdict for a murder charge. It read, Are you sure that at the time Jonathan Coles was thrown off the bridge, the defendant then intended to kill him, or was party to this act with others knowing or realising that it was then their intention to kill him. With regard to proving an intent to kill, the prosecution will only succeed in proving this intent, either by making you sure that this specific intention was actually in the minds of the defendant, or by making you sure that Jonathan Coles's death was a virtual certainty, barring some attempt to save him and the defendant, whose case you are considering, appreciated at the time Jonathan was thrown off the bridge that this was the case. And the defendant then had no intentions of saving him and knew or realised that the others did not intend to save him either. The precise wording of this written guidance would also prove crucial when making further legal arguments. Jonathan Cole's parents sat through every day of the three-week trial. They heard Jason Kniep tell jurors that the gang had gotten pleasure from seeing Jonathan scared, injured and alone. The deliberations were thorough. It took 11 and a half hours to reach verdicts for all charges. A unanimous decision was not something the jury could agree on nor did they believe that all of the defendants shared the same level of culpability. Brian Elaine and Darren Matthews, who insisted they played no part in the victim's death, and Dwayne Dawkins, who admitted to manslaughter, were found guilty of murder on an 11-to-1 majority. The driver Jason Kniep had pleaded guilty to manslaughter, but was found not guilty of murder. Kniep was also found not guilty of robbery, but was convicted of kidnapping. Before they left the court, the judge told the three young killers found guilty of murder that there was only one sentence that could be passed. The jury caught a glimpse of what had been bubbling beneath the surface of the youngest member of the gang when Darren Matthews was being escorted away by officers. He shouted, You're scumbags, the lot of you. Judge Jeffrey Rivlin wanted to review reports on each of the young men found guilty of murder before he recommended a minimum sentence. It was ordered the killers be separated while they were incarcerated. The judge detailed the nature of the crime and a clear desire for Elaine Dawkins and Matthews to cover their tracks as they left Jonathan Coles in the water. He said... Not the least care was taken to see if he would survive. He was left in the river in a secluded place in the dead of night, and no one lifted a finger to help him. They went home knowing something terrible had happened, and joined a conspiracy of silence and lies. Detective Inspector Trevor Howey with the Thames Valley Police was still in shock as to what the killers had done. Although he hoped the verdict would help Jonathan Cole's family come to terms with what happened, the detective could still not fully understand the actions of the four men who played a part in Jonathan's death. 
Jason Kniep had confessed to being involved and stood before the court, telling jurors how the events unfolded in terrifying detail. Kniep was handed a sentence of five years for a conviction of kidnapping and seven years for his guilty plea to a charge of manslaughter. These charges would run concurrently. Kniep had offered evidence against his co-defendants, and while he was not involved in the act of throwing Jonathan into the water, he fully admitted his involvement in the rest of what happened. Quite incredibly, Jonathan's parents, who were regular churchgoers, corresponded with one of their son's killers and told him they forgave him. This was described as a supreme act of generosity by the judge. Dwayne Dawkins was also sentenced to five years for kidnap, a charge he had admitted, and three years for robbery. These sentences would run concurrently with the murder charge. Darren Matthews, who was 17 at the time of the killing, had pleaded not guilty to every charge he faced. He was sentenced to five years for kidnap and three for robbery. Finally, Brian Lane, who was seen as the instigator behind what had happened, faced harsher punishment. Six years for kidnap and four for robbery. The three who were all found guilty of murder were told they were to be detained on a life sentence. At the time, this was determined by the Home Secretary. The judge described each of the murderers and offered his recommendation. It read in part, Elaine, the leader and driving force behind a prolonged, deliberate and very cruel incident with truly disastrous consequences. The murder was motiveless other than, possibly, the prosecution's suggestion that the defendants chose to get rid of an inconvenient victim or witness to robbery, or possibly more likely that as time wore on, the defendants found themselves enjoying their domination over a nerd, as he was referred to, and their behaviour became worse and worse. They descended to what was to them the ultimate satisfaction of his destruction. Elaine apparently reveled in giving evidence and holding the stage, as even then he showed off to the others. No remorse. Fifteen years. Matthews had not met Elaine before that night, but very quickly became his all-too-enthusiastic henchman. Intelligent. Very close to Elaine in culpability, but a good deal younger. In large part, the form of killing was his idea, indulged in and enjoyed the horrific treatment of this young victim. No remorse. Twelve years. Dawkins. Somewhat reluctant but necessary participant. Whilst not quite admitting his full part in the offence, he denied holding Jonathan's legs as he was being bundled over the bridge. He gave much detailed evidence and obviously truthful evidence implicating himself and the others. Accepted that they had gone beyond the ambit of civilised behaviour. Now deeply remorseful. Nine years. It would be almost two years before some of the defendants would again appear in court. Both Darren Matthews and Brian Elaine sought to argue their convictions. Elaine had also appealed the robbery conviction, arguing that while he attacked Jonathan Coles after pursuing him from the club and used his bank card at an ATM, Elaine said that he was not responsible for the physical act of taking the card instead alleging that Darren Matthews was the one who went through Jonathan Cole's pockets to retrieve his wallet. Elaine was present, kicking and punching the victim, an act he described as stupid, 
but he said he was walking away from the scene, possibly several metres away when the robbery occurred. This claim was dismissed outright by the appeal judge Lord Justice Ricks, who said it was well within the remit of the jury to disregard this element of Matthew's argument based on the totality of the evidence. Lord Justice Ricks did, however, grant both Darren Matthews and Brian Elaine leave to appeal their sentence. The arguments were based on the judge's handling of the case in respect of advice he had given the jury around intent. Although a detailed account was provided of the events, it was inferred to the jurors that they could still reach a guilty verdict for murder even if there was no intention to kill in the minds of the defendants, but they knew that death was a virtual certainty when Jonathan was thrown from the bridge. This was an important distinction. Matthews and Elaine had flat out denied they were at the scene. Still, now their defence counsels were using evidence from Dwayne Dawkins and Jason Kinnick, who admitted to being involved. The appeals of Darren Matthews and Brian Elaine were put before Lord Justice Riggs, Mr Justice Crane and Judge David Madison sitting as a judge of the Court of Appeal Criminal Division. The first plank of both Matthews and Elaine's arguments was Judge Geoffrey Rivlin misdirected the jury during his guidance around intent. Secondly, there were arguments that the jury had been influenced on the murder charge due to what was concluded to be Matthews and Elaine's cruel and inhumane treatment of Jonathan Coles. The defence saw this as a benefit for the prosecutor to satisfy a jury of a guilty verdict of murder when he told them the Crown did not have to prove motive. The prosecution's arguments for a motive to hide the killer's actions was deemed unrealistic by the defence counsels, given the gang had travelled to see one of Jonathan Cole's friends and they argued Matthews and Elaine were supposed to have walked to the riverbank to see if Jonathan was okay, at least based on the testimony from Dwayne Dawkins. Finally, Darren Matthews' counsel argued that the evidence from prosecution witness Andrew Jolly Matthew's friend, should have been disregarded, as Jolly admitted that he was intoxicated during the conversation. In his statement to police, Jolly had said that Matthews was present at the bridge, but it was only at the trial when he added additional information in which Matthews had supposedly said, something bad had happened, someone's died, he had fallen in the river. All of this was in addition to Matthews being romantically involved with a former partner of Andrew Jolly's. The defence counsel even referred to a comment Jolly made about the situation. He said he was probably quite jealous of Matthews, even though they remained good friends. When making their decision, the appeal court judges dismissed the arguments made by the defence counsel surrounding evidence from a supposedly jealous witness, as the jury were the finders of the facts, as the judges put it. They did not want to intervene where the jury could rightfully decide on testimony heard. Also, the jury proved they were uninfluenced when reaching verdicts as not all of the defendants were found guilty of murder. Moreover, the appellants were now using evidence from Dwayne Dawkins and Jason Kniep. They had admitted what had happened, despite Darren Matthews and Brian Elaine denying they were there. It made their argument redundant. The challenge to the written direction provided to the jury by the judge was also problematic, as it had been agreed by all defence counsels at the trial before the judge passed it to jurors. 
the verdict from the appeal judges concluded. We do not consider that there is a lurking doubt, nor do we feel a reasoned and substantial unease. On the contrary, we regard the verdicts as safe. In the circumstances, these appeals must be dismissed. So where are we now? Following a change in the law surrounding how minimum terms are decided, moving the ruling from the Home Secretary to the trial judge after this practice was abolished from the end of 2003, life sentences prior to this were reassessed by a High Court judge. Neither Dwayne Dawkins nor Darren Matthews saw a reduction However, Brian Elaine's term was reduced by a year. He would instead face a minimum of 14 years behind bars. During his incarceration, Elaine had come to admit that he had lied when he said he was not involved. Elaine had come to recognise the pain and anguish he had caused Jonathan Cole's family. A relative of Jonathan submitted a statement after they were notified of the sentencing review. It read, To what avail will this review of a just sentence do? Will it make the pain less felt? Or the reason why the crime was carried out come to light? At the time of the trial, I could feel a measure of pity and some forgiveness of the four young men who committed this crime. But as time has gone by and appeal of sentences have gone on, this is beginning to change to that of disbelief in the judicial framework, and my heart begins to harden. Based on their minimum term and barring any events in prison, as at the time of this recording, each of the men responsible for ending the life of Jonathan Coles is likely to have been released. The probation service for England and Wales would not comment on an individual prisoner's release status. When questioned about what happened, Jason Kniep, the only defendant to be acquitted of murder but admitted to the lesser charge of manslaughter, spoke about the events in court. Kniep said, It all followed. One thing led to another. One bad thing followed by an even worse thing. We gradually lost our sense of being civilised human beings and our feelings of human pity. We were prepared to do things to another human being that we would never have dreamed that we were capable of. Jason Kniep, Dwayne Dawkins, Darren Matthews and Brian Elaine's actions went way beyond what they thought they were capable of when they so brutally took a life. But now three of those young men who committed murder are possibly back among us walking the streets. The question is how far are they prepared to go to be productive members of civilised society? Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Wendy Sanders, and everyone who supports us through Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.